Would you stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures from Matthew 7, 13 through 14? Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Um, and I want to start, I'm going I'm to read kind of a long passage uh, from, from one of my favorite novels I've read recently. Um, and truth be told, I'm not, I, I probably get around to like two or three novels a year. And I wish I could read more than that. I'm just kind of a slow reader. And that's all I have capacity for. But um, a few people turned me on to this trilogy of books that are the last, last three I've read. It's, it's a trilogy by this uh, English author named Rachel Cusk. And the third book that completes this trilogy, I think it came out in 2019, maybe? Maybe earlier than that, but uh, the book's called Kudos. And um, anyway, I won't belabor it. I just want you to hear this. All you need to know is that she writes in the first person. She, does, she doesn't say much. The narrator of, of these stories doesn't say much. She's kind of this passive observer. Um, and right now she's in Portugal. She's in... Uh, yeah, I believe she's in Lisbon, Portugal, and she's getting kind of a, uh, a rundown on this really interesting detail about something that's happening there. So just listen to this. I had chosen a propitious time for my visit, he said, since it happened to be the brief season when the city's jacaranda trees were in bloom. They were a feature of the landscape there, running in great tall columns along the boulevards and avenues and decorating the many famous squares. Yet it was only for the merest couple of weeks that they burst into flower, producing great ethereal clouds of luminous violet clusters which moved in the breezes, almost in the manner of water or indeed of music, as though the pretty purple flowers were the individual notes that in chorus formed a rippling body of sound. These trees took an extraordinarily long time to grow, he said, and the towering specimens in the city were decades, indeed centuries old. People sometimes tried to grow them in their own gardens, but unless you were fortunate enough to have inherited one, it was almost impossible to reproduce the spectacle on your own private property. He had many friends, smart, aspirational people of good taste, who had planted a jacaranda tree in their new garden as though this law of nature somehow didn't apply to them, and they could make it grow by the force of their will. After a year or two, they'd become frustrated and complained that it had barely increased even an inch but it would take 20, 30, 40 years for one of these trees to grow and yield its beautiful display, he said, smiling. When you tell them this fact, they're horrified, perhaps because they can't imagine remaining in the same house or indeed the same marriage for so long, and they almost come to hate their jacaranda tree, he said, sometimes even digging it up and replacing it with something else because it reminds them of the possibility that it is patience and endurance and loyalty rather than ambition and desire that bring the ultimate rewards. It's almost a tragedy, he said, that the same people who are capable of wanting the jacaranda tree and understanding its beauty are incapable of nurturing one themselves. That's profound. That's profound. What, what this little anecdote is getting at here is that the path of least resistance, the easy way, the convenient way, the quick way, often offers short-term reward at the expense of long-term joy. 
And it's actually self-denial that often brings the greatest harvest. harvest. For these people who said, oh, I, want, I want the beauty, the splendor of what I see with these jaguaranda trees lining the city street, and it's so beautiful, it's magnificent. They want that. But the prospect of nurturing this thing for decades and decades and decades just immediately cuts against all the other things they might like to do. Well, they might like to leave that tree unattended. They might like to do something else with their time. They might like to have something else right there that will bloom and grow and be beautiful immediately. The path of least resistance often shortcuts long-term, genuine, deeper, more significant, more profound joy. And that's the very idea that this passage that, uh, that Lee read for us is, is getting at, at least in part, and I'll explain why in a moment. That's, that, that's what this is getting at in part. You know, this, this, this Sunday, um, when I, we, we build like a preaching calendar for the year, so we have all the dates and we have kind of things that are coming up and we try to be, you know, uh, balanced and the kinds of things we address and whatever. And uh, as you know, we're, we've been working through the gospel according to Mark. I think I've already said we're going to be finishing Mark at Easter. And so we will be officially done with the book of Mark Easter Sunday, um, which means next week we're going to pick it up and that will be us for the next three and a half months. We'll be through the end of Mark. But I had left this sermon this Sunday just with a little question mark on the schedule, which I, I put those in periodically, which is just to say, like, let's leave a little bit of room in space to see, like, what does the Lord want us to hear? What do we need to hear? What, you know, six months ago when we wrote this calendar out, what, what will we need to be thinking about on January 8th, 2023? And I don't claim to infallibly be communicating to you, this is, thus saith the Lord, this is exactly what he wants for you. But nonetheless, as I was thinking and praying and um, kind of having ideas float around and solidify, I really did have the sense, like, I, I think this is what I need and I think this is what we need. May it be so that I'm, I'm discerning what the Lord has for us in that as well. Um, as we enter a new year, it's always, I mean, we're already in the habit of it, most of us. How many of you have made like a New Year's resolution? Or are you too cool for that? Anybody? Any New Year's resolutions? Oh, it's Portland. I forgot. I didn't either. But you know some people who, you know, those people who set New Year's resolutions and those kinds of things. No, regardless of what your traditions are, there's a natural point, the turning over a calendar year into something new where we begin to question, like, what is my life for? What is my life going to be about this year? Is there anything that I ought to pursue or not ought to pursue that's different from last year? What new rhythms, what new habits should I put in? What gym membership should I partake in? So on and so forth. I think it's a, it's a meaningful and useful and helpful thing to sort of take stock. We don't have that many years in this life, do we? So the start of each one, there's a profound opportunity, and it seems to me that this passage addresses some of our unique temptations, challenges, and opportunities. In this time in history, this time in our city, even this time uh, in our lives. So what is this? If you didn't know, this is from the tail end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Gospel according to, to Mark does not include the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of this, the, the, the keystone teaching of Jesus' ministry that kind of 
probably, it, it very well could have been him giving this whole sermon in one sitting or whatever, but most scholars would say this is probably Matthew's attempt to sort of take the common threads and the most common and most profound and basic teachings of Jesus and kind of present them wholesale to us. What did Jesus teach? Well, when he went to a new city, he probably taught some of this here, some of that there. He, he probably repeated what he taught a whole bunch of times in a bunch of different places. And when we read this sermon, we're kind of getting the greatest hits of what Jesus had to teach. And as we get into this part of chapter 7, he kind of turns the corner from his basic, you know, sort of various teachings to sort of summarize the whole thing and bring it to a conclusion. And this is, this is Jesus sort of saying, what now? You've been listening to me now for 20 minutes or however long it takes you to read this sermon. Probably a little bit less than that. But what now? If you've been weighing all these things I've been saying to you, what do you do now? And he ends with this, this, there's two gates and two roads, a choice before you. You can go through the narrow gate or you can go through the wide gate. I submit to you, choose the narrow, choose the narrow, go through that one. And then a little bit further, he talks about these two trees, one that's healthy bearing fruit, one that isn't. Why, what is the difference between these two things? And then he concludes with this idea of two builders building homes, laying foundations on two different types of material. You've heard that story, the rock and the sand. And that's how the sermon ends. So he, he, he brings it all together, kind of laying before you in three different metaphors. You have a choice. There's two ways you can order your life. Choose wisely. And he doesn't leave it to us even to choose wisely. He says, choose this one. Choose this one. Choose this one. So we're just going to look at the first of those, but understand this comes in, in context of, of, of multiple of these kinds of teachings. In light of all that Jesus has been teaching about his kingdom and himself, he says, you have a choice before you, and you ought to choose the narrow way, which is ultimately himself, as we'll see. So let's pray, and then we're going we're gonna to jump into this. Father, we need you to speak this morning. It really does not matter what I, Cameron, have to say. It really doesn't. Neither I nor anyone else in this room should really care what I'm convinced by, what I'm interested in, or anything else. What matters, Lord, is what you have spoken. So my hope and my prayer is that you would speak through me to communicate your truth, Lord, that we would walk away understanding what you meant when you uttered these words, that we could receive them, that we could be challenged by them, inspired by them, motivated by them, encouraged by them, all the different things that this text is meant to do. We want it, Lord. We want it, so help us. We lay ourselves at your feet. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, he starts with a command, the only command in these two verses. Enter through the narrow gate. Do this. Go make this choice. Enter this gate. But then he jumps, he jumps aside and he starts describing a different gate. He says, enter the narrow gate. But, listen to this. The wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Jesus speaks of an open, spacious, sort of all-encompassing road that demands nothing of its travelers. The idea is that it includes everything. The wide versus the narrow is the image of a singular way versus a breadth that could encapsulate everything, everything. 
Any and every path, except the one, except the narrow one, converges on this big road, and this road is wide enough to contain all of them. That's the image we're meant to see here. And if that is the case, and Jesus, of course, is using metaphor here to speak of ways of being, ways of forming your worldview, uh, the things that you put your trust in, the things that you derive your meaning from, the, the things that inform the kinds of choices you make, the things that make a life. The things that make a life is what he's talking about. If it is true that there is a wide and broad option, it's obvious why most would prefer this, which he says they do. Many, many enter through it. A road that, that literally is open to any and everything asks nothing of you. A, that's nice. I don't really like to have things asked of me personally. And it has so much company. There's so many people along the way. There's such a camaraderie there. It's easy to see why people would choose this. On the wide road, all paths, all paths lead to the same destination. You are free to curate your own spirituality, your own religion, if you like. As we've put it before, you're free to become your own prophet, even your own king, even your own priest, and ultimately, yes, your own God. Go ahead. Knight yourself God of the universe on this road. It's a live option for you. But what's interesting and sad and tragic is he says this road is wide and it's broad. Many people favor it, but it leads to destruction. It leads to death. It leads to suffering. It leads to the opposite of life and flourishing and healing and wholeness. Any of our idols are happy to oblige us down whatever road we pick as long as it fits the wide gate, which is everything except the one which we'll get to, which is the narrow. I remember, I, I love the movie Ghostbusters. I don't know if that's weird. I just, I, I just feel like it's this classic little, it's, it's, it's the kind of movie that if it wasn't funny, it would still be cool because the concept is just so interesting to me. And if the concept wasn't so cool, it would still be funny because the jokes are just on fire. I, I love that movie. And I, I, I'm going to assume most people haven't seen the original Ghostbusters super recently, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll refresh your memory. But at, towards the end of the movie, the Ghostbusters, which are portrayed as, you know, like exterminators, basically. They're like these blue-collar guys. Uh, well, most of them are like PhDs who are now blue-collar guys because they got booted out of their fields. And they're wearing, they're wearing their gear and their, their very utilitarian-looking pack of stuff and all that. And they're facing off with a god with a god. And they face this god on the top of this New York City building, and the god tells them this, choose the form of your destructor. And then it disappears, and it goes quiet, and the Ghostbusters are like, what do we do? And one of them realizes, oh, whatever we think of, that thing is going to appear and destroy us. So don't think of anything. Don't think of anything. Everyone, clear your mind. Don't think of anything. And so they do. But then that you suddenly hear this like roar and like this crashing and stuff. And you've probably, even if you haven't seen the movie, you've probably seen the image. The giant marshmallow man starts walking down like Major Street in Times Square. And uh, they ask one of the Ghostbusters, like, well, did you do anything? And, and, and one of the characters says, I tried to think of the most harmless thing. Something I loved from my childhood. Something that could never, ever possibly destroy us. Mr. Stay Puffed. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good strategy, actually. 
that image to me, I just captures it. It's like anything, anything that we choose to sort of root our life in, anything that no matter how harmless it seems, no matter how docile, no matter how sweet, no matter how innocent, can become our very destroyer. That's part of the idea of this wide road. Every, all these things that look good and look fun and look peaceable, they can end up being the very, very thing that destroys us, according to Jesus. Another thing about this that we see in just this idea of Jesus saying this is many who enter it is that the gravitational pull of this way of being is immense. Do you see that? Do you understand yourself as someone who is constantly being beset by temptations and pulls and ideas that would take you down this way away from Jesus? This is the default way all of us, left to our own devices, will just naturally drift like being carried along down the current of a river. This takes the form especially, I mean, especially in our day, our technological day, where we all have supercomputers. Computers people in the 70s would have never even imagined existed. We carry this thing in our pockets all the time. We sleep with them next to our heads. For me, I'm working on this. It's the first thing I look at when I get up in the morning, the last thing I look at when I go to bed. This is my little idol factory here. I suspect it is for most of you as well. Especially in a day where we have these things and we have nefarious characters, actually, in the form of media and advertisers and the app makers and virtually every piece of content that comes to us through this thing is meant to make us a product for someone. <laughs> it's meant to commodify your time and your attention and your energy. And it's meant to shape you to desire certain things and not desire other certain things over against well, anything that's against the financial interests of these companies. We live in a uniquely challenging time to be able to resist the gravitational pull of the wide road, I believe. The question is, what does your time, what does your attention, what does your money, what does your energy, what does your passion go to by default? And I'd wager that it's probably not even default. It's probably someone at the other end of someone's manipulation. Jesus' point, no matter how many mini roads end up on this wide road, which is so all-encompassing, they all lead to death. And this isn't really a novel thing that Jesus is saying. We read that and probably initially in a religious context, like, oh, this sounds very like fire and brimstone and like, oh, very narrow. But it's, Jesus is just being a realist. Do you know of any road in this life that does not end in death? can't think of one. Every road we might enlist ends in death. The implication of what Jesus is saying here is that there's just, a, there's not beyond a physical death, there is also a spiritual death, a spiritual kind of destruction. But we all are primed to accept that there is no way out of a road that leads towards destruction. Jesus on one level is just calling it like it is, like we can all admit. Okay, nice, bright, happy little, little sermonette there. The wide road, wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it, and its pull is on all of us. But, but, small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it.
first thing I want to note about this is that there is a path. The path to life is a sign, is a sign of the loving goodness of God. What do I mean by that? What Jesus is calling us to and asking every person who would ever hear this teaching when he was alive and who would ever read it now, even 2,000 years later, as we are still coming around these ancient texts, these ancient words of this ancient Near Eastern religious leader, who is so much more than that, of course, his desires that everyone who would hear these words would come and would experience life. This is not, note, this is not a text that's trying to keep anyone at arm's length. This is a text that says, I want you to understand the reality of things so that you might actually taste life. Enter through the narrow gate. And that's the one that leads to life. That's the one that leads to your deepest good, your deepest flourishing, your deepest joy. And those things for any of the people that he's made. What we should see here is that God desires your good, friends. He desires your life and your life to the full. But there's a second thing we can draw from this short verse. And this is one that makes us really uncomfortable, but stick with me here. It's that the, the path to life is singular and exclusive. And that is probably the most, one of the most offensive things you can say in the modern, postmodern West, that, that the path to life is singular and exclusive. But it's the, it's what he's, it's the very central heart of what he's claiming here. So we're going we're gonna to try to understand what Jesus means by this. But we have to first state, before we get our, our feathers ruffled too much by that, is that this is the claim of every major religion and nearly every other religion or f- philosophy claim that it, that's in existence. This is the way to go. This is the way to God. This is the way to happiness. This is the way to justice. This is the way to equality, whatever it may be. This way and not some other way. And I I hope that, that we're not wildly offended when a Muslim would say to us, my religion is correct and I think that yours is wrong. Because of course they do. Of course they do. Everyone, everyone nearly makes that claim. In fact, I've, you've probably heard this said before. I've heard this from a number, number of people, but it's the sort of coexist bumper sticker mentality, um, which, you know, you could put that bumper sticker on your car and you could mean a number of things by that. You could simply mean people of various religious backgrounds should be able to get along, which we would, I hope, all say, of course. Of course, it's a good thing that our country in particular is religiously tolerant. Um, it's a very good thing. We should desire that. But... If, if, if by that bumper sticker you mean all of these are sort of just getting at the same thing and it's all kind of different angles on the same religious experience and all these different roads sort of lead to the same place, you know, I, you guys have heard that metaphor, whatever, it's an old proverb or something that, you know, religions are sort of like different blind men sort of groping at an elephant. I don't know if I should use the word groping there, but... Um, <laughs> You know, the idea that there's a big elephant and then every religion represents a different person sort of like touching, touching the elephant. They say, oh, they touch the, the big strong leg. It's like this, you know, God is like a giant tree trunk. And then one touches the tail and says something else. And one touches the ear and says something else and on and on and so forth. That sort of idea 
in my view, is probably the most arrogant <laughs> position you could take. Because to say that you alone are the one who says, look, all these different religions that are sort of grappling and who have stood the test of time for millennia in different cultures and places and settings, you know, they're all just sort of groping at this one. They've just got this one little piece, but back here, you know, we can see the whole. Do you see how, that, how arrogant that is? How actually that position in some ways, the sort of all roads lead to the same place, how it actually is very paternalistic toward people who hold different views and actually is taking a seat of supreme knowledge and confidence over against everything else that's ever existed. So I don't think we should be scandalized by any particular worldview, any particular philosophy, or any particular religion claiming that it is the way. Um, because if, if, if they weren't claiming these things, why should anyone listen to them? Jesus, too, leaves us with this radical claim. This very idea is fleshed out in his teachings elsewhere. You've probably heard this one. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's a claim that Jesus makes, a claim that Christianity makes. And you can agree with it or you can disagree with it, but it's his claim. We have to do something with it. But let's keep going. We also see that the path, so okay, if the path to life is singular, it's, it's, it's small, it's narrow, it's contrasted with the wide gate that just sort of encompasses all the other paths, then what is it? What we would say, what we have to say, is that the path to life is through Jesus himself and not through achievement. Um, most of us, when we read this, when you read verse 14, small is the gate, narrow is the road. Some of the other translations translate it, uh, uh, narrow is the gate and hard is the road or difficult. And, and they're, they're kind of doing some interpretive work. The two words in the Greek are actually just synonyms for small, narrow, tight, constrictive. Um, but most of us, I think, kind of import that idea that it's hard. And we read this and we go, okay, I, I have a category for this. What Jesus is saying is that the way to life is through really hard work. It's through effort. It's through getting it together. It's through serving the poor enough. It's through giving away enough of my money. It's through laying down my life in all of these sacrificial ways. That's how you achieve spiritual success. Now, if we were to say that, if we were to read this this way, we would be to fly in the face of the entire gospel message and the fundamental point of the Sermon on the Mount, which is not, hey, get a higher sort of moral character for yourself, get a, get a more rigid. He's, remember, this is in the context of him. His, his, his polemic is pr primarily against the Pharisees when they're reading these things and they're hearing these things specifically. They've got a tight buttoned up religious system. And Jesus's point is, you've heard it said, don't do this thing. I'm saying your heart is already compromised at the fundamental level. You need something else than a moral program. You need something else than more effort. You need something else than a little sort of kick to, to spur you on. Jesus, the point, one of the points of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus himself is the key Jesus himself is the gate. Jesus himself is the way. Jesus himself is all of these things. The wide road, we have to get this in our heads, the wide road encompasses all highly moral and religious and stringent and rigorous and self-disciplined paths. 
as well as all of the sort of irreligious, laissez-faire, choose-your-own-adventure path. The wide includes all of that. It includes it all. The narrow road is not white-knuckling your spirituality. It is receiving the one who is the life himself. The narrow gate is Jesus. Entering it is not about doing enough good things to earn the right to pass through, like there's a checkpoint there. It's about throwing yourself at the feet of the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then once you've come to him, it's to keep walking along that road, to keep walking that path, to keep walking that way. And you will find a continual and ongoing challenge, and you will find a countercurrent, but it's trusting that he is sufficient to bring us through, and his grace is deep enough, even for our deepest stumblings and backtrackings and all of those things. So we enter the gate by receiving the free gift of grace that he accomplished for you and for me on the cross and walking with him then all the days of our lives. That is what it means to enter, not to bootstrap it to a higher level of enlightenment or self-discipline or whatever else. The second thing, actually I think that was the third thing. Here's the fourth thing about this. A lot you can get from 12 words or whatever that is. We see that the path to life is unpopular. The path to life is unpopular, so we are called in this by Jesus to embrace our identities as a prophetic minority. Have you done that? Do you understand that if you want to be faithful to Jesus, you will necessarily find yourself in a minority position in this world? that the power structures of our, of our world are set against, not in every place, at every time, in every way, of course. There will be times whenever God's common grace, there's overlap and things we can celebrate, um, plenty, in fact. But at some point or another, there will be a deep and serious point of tension where if you want to be faithful to Jesus, it means forsaking the world. We must be willing to be a prophetic minority. And to do that, we must believe that Jesus does indeed have what he claims here, which is that he does hold the key to life, to flourishing, to peace, to justice, to equality, to all of these things that we long for, all of these things that make up his vision for the world that he's actually going to put right. We have to believe he really does hold these things, he really does define these things, and we have to both trust it for ourselves, say, yes, I actually believe that to the point where I will suffer for it, I will, be, I will be distanced, I will be separated, I will be othered for it. And we have, to tr- we have to trust it enough to proclaim it to others, even when the world says otherwise. So the path to life is unpopular. Here's another thing. The path to life is unscaffolded by the world which means we need to embrace a life of resistance and counterformation. The wide, the idea is just like everything is sort of pushing us on that wide gate. Everything kind of flows that direction. Everything will make it easy. Everything will reinforce any assumption that you have as long as it isn't tied to Jesus of Nazareth. 
everything is working to shape us. Everything that you're getting day in and day out on this thing is working in some small piece to distract you and pull you that direction. So everything fits over there. We aren't getting any help from the world around us for the most part in our discipleship to Jesus. Remember that great quote from Malcolm Muggeridge, never forget that only dead fish swim with the stream. Called to swim against the stream, Jesus is saying here. How might we do that? How might we embrace counterformation? How might we go against this grain? Well, the, some of the basic things we've talked about, you know, repeatedly and ongoingly is to, is to carve out time and space to just commune with this God. We've talked specifically about some of the core spiritual disciplines that have served the church over the centuries to this end. If we could pick five that we would say, hey, these are the ones that if you're not doing these things, we encourage you, start stepping into these in some small way, even as we kick off a new year. We would say these, prayer. You seek them in prayer. I won't put any definition onto that, regularity, what that looks like, what forms that takes, whatever, but do you pray? Scripture, do you read his words? Do you memorize them? Do you bring them into your life? Do you discuss them? Do you wrestle with them? Do you chew on them? Do you meditate on them? Is scripture part of your life? Community, community, do you make space in your life to bring other people along with you on this journey? Are you an encouragement to others and will you receive the encouragement of other people? Will you live into the family vision that God has for his people and community? Service, you give of your time and your energies. In some cases, in formal ways, like in the, in the church, in formal things where you can sign up on a spreadsheet and you're on the team and whatever, but beyond that, just serving people, both inside and outside the community of faith. Giving of yourself and your energy and your time to meet the needs of other people. Do you serve like the one who came not to be served, but to serve? And to witness. Do you, do you make any effort to actually communicate the truths and the beauty and the joy that you have in Jesus to those who do not know him? There are plenty of other valuable disciplines. Um, those are good ones to start with. What we always like to say is that what these are, these are not the ends in and of themselves. These are opportunities to commune with the God who can change you. These things don't change you in and of themselves, but if you give yourself over to him through these things, he can do a lot with that, friends. He can do a lot with that. One more thing to say here. One more thing to say here is that the path to life is inclusive. What do I mean by that? Well, it's really easy to read this, this passage as many have and to say, well, look, see, God just, he only, he, you know, he only cares about a few small select group of people. You can kind of quickly twist this into sort of keeping the out groups at arm's length or whatever. But once again, we have to contextualize this in the overall teaching of Jesus. That for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. As Peter tells us, that he was not wanting that any should perish. His desire is that no one, no one would face the alternative here. 
that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, we are told. And actually, there's something in here that's really great because often an alternative, you'll hear to something like this, that uh, you know, Jesus is the gate, he's the, he's the way, no one comes to the Father but through Jesus. Well, I have a far more inclusive, I have a far more inclusive understanding of spirituality. You know what mine is? It's that anyone who can just, you know, become a good person will find God. Anyone. I think that if anyone tries to be a good person, like then, then God will reward them. You know who that's, who that excludes? All of us! All of us! It sounds so sweet on the, on the ear. Any sort of good person, you know, I just think anyone who can be a good person ought to be. Like that, that, what that immediately does is it says, okay, well, um, good luck, you moral exemplars, you perfect people, you ones who are, <laughs> are so good at living your lives with such righteousness and faithfulness that you can earn this. The beauty of God's mechanism for faith is that it, it, it requires no <laughs> perfection. It requires no spiritual fortitude to earn it. It's to simply come to him open-handedly and say, I have nothing to bring, but I trust you. I throw myself at your feet. Lord, save me. And yes, of course, then he has things for us to do. He wants to change us. He wants to shape us. He does not want to leave us where we started. He has works, good works for us to walk in. We're not afraid of good works. We shouldn't be. We're not afraid of fighting for justice and good things in this world. We're not afraid of using our hands and our feet and our hearts and our minds, our bodies to serve this world. He says, all that comes after you trust me and you receive from me your salvation, your righteousness, your justification. And there is no there's no hurdle to clear. You don't have to be a good enough person to earn that. That is the scandal of the gospel. And that's part of why, even though at first blush, all of this sounds so restrictive and so sort of ugly and so like, I don't know, exclusive in its own way, in a way that's very negative and, and like probably makes, us all, makes me recoil at certain times when I think about it, even as I say these things. But the more you dive into this, you go, oh my gosh, what other way is there except to receive something free? Anyone can do that. Anyone can do that. The most harmed, the most abused, the most twisted, the most uh, confused, the most ugly, the most perpetrating, the most abusive person can come to this God and can receive what he has. This is not dependent on our worth, our dignity, our ability. In that sense, it is widely, widely, beautifully, inspiringly inclusive. And this, this has been borne out in practice, friends. I would just say, did you know, did you know that Christianity is the largest slash most practiced religion in the world? Did you know that the, the, the center of Christianity is shifting, if it hasn't already, from from sort of the uh, upper western hemisphere uh, to the global south. Did you know that the average Christian is not some stodgy white guy? No shade to them. I'm one of them, you know. We're fine. <laughs> we have our pros and our cons. But, you know, it's a, it's a northern African woman. 
50 years from now, you think about the average Christian, that is what you will think of. That's exactly what Jesus said he was doing, isn't it? He said he's making this kingdom that transcends every geography. It transcends every local nationality. It transcends everything. He's making a kingdom for people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's actually doing it, friends. He already has been. He already has been. It took a long time of church history before Europe got Christianity. And Christianity is on the decline in Europe and the U.S., but almost everywhere else (laughs) right now in this moment in history, it's exploding. So it is not the case. For whatever challenges, you know, sort of our, our... our, our uh, sort of sensibilities have with hearing this teaching of Jesus about the narrow way, it is not the case that it has produced a religion that is not accessible to more people than any other across human history. Not just that, Christianity is the religion that expresses itself in the most places and culturally varied forms of any religion in human history. It's not a religion that's tied to a particular locality. That's why there's no, you know, place that all Christians have to go to to pay pilgrimage or whatever. There's not like this cultural form, although many Americans would like to, <laughs> like to think that there is and build one. There is not sort of like an American export culture that goes with Christianity. Christianity transcends all that. It can thrive in any culture. It can transform any culture. The essential core of it can go anywhere. And it has, friends. It has. This might sound crazy because we're not used to thinking about it this way, but to commit yourself to Jesus, to the narrow way, in his words, he talks about this in other ways too. We'll use his words here. To the narrow way, the small gate, is to commit yourself, ironically, to the most beautifully diverse movement in world history. Did you know that? Did you know that? So finish that point there. It's, it's to say, as much as we read this, and we go, oof, I don't like that, and I am with you. I 100% get it. I feel it myself. We just, we, we put this in the context of both what, what all the other things Jesus said and taught and did. We see his heart for all people. His plead there in the first verse, 13, to please enter through this gate, taste this life I have for you, that that goes out to every person. And ironically enough, it is this very gospel message that has created the most geographically and culturally, racially, what you name the metric, diverse movement that the world has ever known. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. So the gospel is exclusive. Don't we dare forget how radically inclusive the gospel is as well. To conclude, to conclude, simply say this, choose life. You know, if you're on the fence with Jesus, I think the Sermon on the Mount is a great place to start. Go and read this sermon, starts in Matthew 5. Read through it, just a few chapters, it won't take you more than 10 minutes or so, I suspect. And see what this Jesus is after. See how his heart beats. And there you get the manifesto of life in his kingdom. Not to earn your place into it, but once you have received it through his free gift, then this is something that he begins to call us to and shape us into, inform us into, and inspire us along. You want to know if you want to be a part of this thing that Jesus is building? Start there. That's a great place. See what is on the heart of this Jesus and just what kind of people he's trying to build. And see if you're not moved by it. See if you're not brought to tears by it. 
But Jesus leaves us at the end of that sermon with this. He says, come, enter, enter, taste this life that I have. I know all the, all the momentum, all the energy, all the gravity is pulling you a million different directions, which are really just one direction. It's this road over here. I know that, but come this way. Come taste and see that the Lord is good. Come through Jesus the gate. Believe in him. Repent. Kill your gods. Burn your ships. Turn away from whatever else it is that's, that's giving you meaning and significance in this life. And come and trust him. Throw yourself at his feet. Say, Jesus, I need you. I want you. Whoever confesses with his mouth and believes in his heart that Jesus is Lord will be saved. Declare him to be your Lord. And then, after you believe, after you've entered that gate, we walk the road. And yes, it's narrow. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's going to start pulling on us and all sorts of desires that we have and all sorts of ways we're understanding the world and our place in it and ourselves. Yes, it's going to require us to sort of move. It's going to be difficult in some ways. But follow. Follow after him. And know, as we said before, if you backtrack, if you fall off, if you stumble, that's what grace is for. You didn't get onto this path through anything but sheer grace, and you're not going to move forward on it through anything but sheer grace. He's so good to us, friends. He's so loving. His patience is so long. But he is calling us somewhere. He is calling us somewhere. So maybe say, to, to circle back to what we said before, if, if you are a believer... Maybe today, maybe today you decide to make that proclamation. But I, as we enter this new year, let's not call it a New Year's resolution. Let's not be corny. But seriously think, what is one thing, one thing that you ought to set down that's pulling you, that's pulling you away from the path that Jesus would have you be on? What's one thing maybe? Maybe it's a habit that you've picked up in the last couple of years. I think most of us have been in some form of a real serious survival mode in the last couple of years. And maybe you picked up a habit that was helpful for survival at a particular time, but that isn't serving you anymore. It's making you serve it. What's a habit you need to set down? What's something you need to, to, to cut out of your life in order to make more space for Jesus? And then on the same thing, what's one thing you ought to pick up What's one habit, what's one practice, what's one discipline? Maybe very, very, very simple, but one that wasn't there when we started this 20 minutes ago. Ah, probably more like 35, 40 minutes ago. What's something you can pick up? Not, as an, not to save yourself, not to earn your way onto this road. Let's be very clear. Something you can pick up that will say, I'm going to use this thing to make space to commune with my Jesus who loves me who can use this to use this kindling that I'm bringing together to set it aflame, to do something amazing, to change me, to transform me, to push me down along this road with him. I encourage you to think about that, write something down, pray over it, and act this week. If I could be so bold to say it, well, the other implications here, and this is how we'll end, is that the Jesus is saying, though, though the, there's all these difficulties about this narrow gate, it's not what comes naturally to us. This is the one that leads to life. This is the one that will survive. This is the one that will, that, that will find no end. 
This is the one that will result in, in a new heavens and a new earth where God reigns and rules, where every bit of sin and evil and injustice and death and sickness is finally done away with and the world is returned to the way it was always meant to be and more. What this invites us to understand this is that the kingdom of God and the gospel will outlast the current world order. The kingdom of God and the gospel will outlast the United States of America. America's not that old, friends. I don't know how much longer it's got. It's not looking good to me, if I'm honest with you. And so half the time I joke about that and half the time I get really actually scared about that because there's gonna be a lot of discomfort and pain. So I actually, I actually don't wanna joke too much about the collapse of our civilization. But, <laughs> but it could collapse. If history tells anything, it will collapse one day. It will. God's kingdom will outlast our country. It will outlast the city of Portland. It will outlast the, the, the sort of 60-year-old ideologies of the sexual revolution. It will outlast Google. It will outlast Apple. Believe it or not, the kingdom of God's going to outlast the Simpsons, though they keep making seasons of it. The kingdom of God will be longer. It will outlast the dollar and the euro and the yen, it will outlast Instagram, it will outlast TikTok. Dear God, it will outlast Pornhub. It will outlast the Democratic Party, it will outlast the Republican Party, it will outlast any other party we think of. It will outlast this church. It will outlast your favorite preacher or author, it will outlast Coca-Cola. It will outlast the New York Times, it will outlast Fox News, it will outlast the Oculus Rift. The kingdom of God and the gospel will outlast our movie theaters. It will outlast McDonald's. The kingdom of God will last. If we were to read on, we would see that Jesus calls us to build our homes on his solid foundation because nothing can take it away. Nothing will take it away. All these things that seem so permanent and they seem so important and they form us and they shape us and they tempt us and they pull us so many directions, they'll be gone like this. If Jesus is right. He's been right so far, friends. This little Christianity that started under the oppressive thumb of the Roman Empire, it is all, look what it's become. Yes, it's become a lot of ugly things too. We'll talk about that in another sermon. But look at all the beauty that has wrought in this world. Look how many people have been brought into it. Look how it stands and Caesar has fallen. That will continue to be the case, whatever you set up against him, friends. So as we enter 2023, may we build on that foundation. Amen? Amen. All right. Though it may be difficult... Though it may war with your default settings, though it may be unpopular, though it may require real struggle, may we choose Jesus. Let's pray.